Thank you for joining me for this edition of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The opinions you hear on this program are strictly those of myself and my two guests today, Kevin Tomlinson and Phil Borges. They do not represent any other person or entity. (coughs) Fifty years ago, in 1966, after earning my doctorate, I took a position at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. My appointments were in the counseling division doing psychotherapy with students and also in the departments of psychology in the Graduate School of Social Work, where I taught, did research, and I led groups. In those days, there were certain topics that one did not do research on if one wanted to advance in their academic careers. Those topics on the no-no list included hypnosis, human sexuality, psychedelic medicines, drug addiction, alcoholism, and at the very bottom of the no-no list was mental illness, severe mental illness, very much including schizophrenia. Let's take a brief look at what was looked down upon by psychology just 50 years ago and a bit about where we stand today. Hypnosis. Hypnosis has been and remains somewhat of a befuddlement to the professions of psychology and psychiatry. There's something about hypnosis that's easily seen as voodoo. Think of the following. One person's speaking words with a certain tone, and the person they're directing their speech towards goes into a trance and then does various, often silly behaviors, which they would most likely not do under normal circumstances. That's the stuff you see on TV or in theaters. In this trance, some people are able to ignore serious pain, such as childbirth. That's the stuff you might see in a hospital. And others are able to allow someone to poke a needle right through their skin. Think of the implications of hypnosis. What if there was such a thing as mass hypnosis? What if the theater hypnotists were actually able to hypnotize tens or hundreds of people at the same time? Will people commit acts under hypnosis they would not do otherwise? Can a person be hypnotized into doing things of a sexual nature? Will they, could they be turned into a weapon? Hypnosis is a knotty problem, and it's not a popular one for research for that reason. Let's look at human sexuality. The distinguished and world-famous University of Indiana professor Alfred Kinsey was vilified for publishing his comprehensive work on human sexuality that went all around the world. Dr. Kinsey lost his funding, was criticized by the Rockefellers, was called, amongst other things, a communist, and died an unhappy man after making a huge contribution. We've come a long way down the past, for 50 years, and human sexuality research is allowable now, but far from popular. You're taking a risk if you get into that kind of research and you're a scientist or an academician. How about psychedelic medicines? In 1966, it was impossible to do research in psychedelic medicine. The government made the research almost impossible to conduct, and academia stood quiet like a chastised child. Fifty years later, there's a sprinkling of research going on in this country and around the world into psychedelic medicine, Most of this research is supported by the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, whose founder, Dr. Rick Doblin, has been on this program several times. My own book, 
Psychedelic Medicine will be published this year. Research into psychedelic medicine is risky, possible, not the best way to get a promotion, but possible. Drug addiction. Working with drug addicts and doing research on them was the stepchild of psychology 50 years ago. Addicts were considered lowly street people. Professional therapists were nice middle-class folks who did not enjoy getting dirty. Enter cocaine, and drug addiction became an equal opportunity addiction serving all classes. Treating and researching drug addicts rose in status, became acceptable, and a lot of money was made. Do we have cures for drug addiction? Very marginal. Do we have a national program? Definitely not. Do we even have statewide programs? Not really. We have local programs, private and some public. Not a good field to go into. Alcoholism. This ancient source of consternation for a segment of humanity appears to have a life of its own. It does, actually. A percentage of the population drink the demon rum to the point of doing harm to themselves, their families, and their occupations. Educating and treating alcoholics is an industry unto itself. Standards of treatment are few. Treatment success is limited. It's thought that 10% of the adult population have a serious control problem with alcohol. That comes to mm, possibly 20 million people. Treating alcoholics and researching them has never had much status attached to it. But now we come to mental illness. And last, but far from least, is mental illness. Illness in the head. An illness with thinking and or with feeling. An illness that causes a person to think and feel at times very different from the way most everyone else is thinking and feeling. At times, the thoughts and feelings of those called mentally ill lead them to behave in ways the rest of society think is strange, odd, scary, frightening, aberrant, dangerous. Over the course of time, we have locked these people in caves, drowned them in water, shocked them with electricity, cut out parts of their brains, and even referred to them as shaman. In our culture, we refer to this group of people as mentally ill, crazy, or psychotic. Working with these folks is working in the foxholes and trenches of psychology. They do not fit into a nice, neat office practice where everyone shows up on the correct day and the right time, leaves at the end of the session, and pays their bills. In fact, Meeting with these folks in an hour or two or three each week in an office is close to worthless. Treating them the way one treats the rest of the population is misguided because they're not like the rest of the population. They present major challenges to the very structure of psychotherapy and in turn are considered incurable. In other words, they're blamed for their illness. We say, you're incurable, rather than, at minimum, we've not yet figured out how to cure you. Back when I was a graduate student, I was taught that schizophrenia was incurable. Freud called it the narcissistic neurosis. No cure. The diagnosis of schizophrenia 
was a one-way ticket to a life in an institution. Here's a story from my own career. My dad, a dental surgeon, an army colonel, is sitting on the beach. Next to him is his friend who's a psychiatrist, and his friend is upset. And why is he upset? Because the son of a patient of his was just found laying naked in a snowstorm on a superhighway in Ohio, waiting for God. Cut to the chase. The psychiatrist called me. I called the head of the mental hospital. We had the patient flown to California. I brought him up to a place I've been connected to for 45 years called Wilbur Hot Springs, out in the country. I put him by the fire, and he lay there like a sleeping dog for the first three months after I very slowly took him off a very long series of medications. After that, he was able to stand up and walk around. I won't go into all the details of the case, but my colleagues who were watching with me, particularly a good friend, Dr. Bruce Africa, watched the case carefully. They all said, schizophrenia, incurable. Why are you having him? What are you doing there? What, what, what's this about? I said, I just don't believe it. The end of the story is that after three years living there, being treated by myself and probably 15% of the guest population of Wilbur Hot Springs, who were therapists, who also joined right in, he left. He went down to Berkeley, California. He got a job. He got married. He had children. And he's been living a normal life for the last 30 years. Once one diagnosed paranoid schizophrenia who's in a mental hospital who, and who has been told you'll be here for the rest of your life, once one can go back to living a normal life with a wife and children and a job, it says it's possible. And that's what it said to me. Well, that brings us to what all of this introduction is about. Because today we have the makers of a film called Crazy Wise, which is about mental illness. We have with us Phil Borges and Kevin Tomlinson. Kevin Tomlinson has been an independent Seattle-based producer, director, and cinematographer for over 25 years. He has earned numerous Emmys and tellies for his network news camera work with NBC, ABC, CBS, PBS, and Discovery. Kevin directed and co-produced the award-winning documentary film Back to the Garden, which was premiered at SIFF in 2009 and has been at over 30 international film festivals. You want to take a look on Google to Back to the Garden. His partner, director, and executive producer Phil Borges has been documenting indigenous cultures and striving to create an understanding of the challenges they face for over 25 years. For his program, Starting the Fire, check that one out on Google as well, Phil produced at Starting the Fire. Phil produced and filmed several short films capturing the stories of women heroes and the issues they face all over the world, both as solo projects, and he did it in collaboration with organizations such as UN Women and Care. Phil has also spoken at multiple TED Talks. Welcome, Kevin Tomlinson and Phil Borges to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. So, let's start at the beginning. You heard something of my interest in mental illness. Tell me something about your interest in mental illness. Kevin, why don't you begin? How did this start for you? 
Well, um, I guess like many people, you know, you're either affected in your family or through a loved one, a friend, um, you know, and, and I, I, I married into a family that had mental illness in, in their family already. And uh, we didn't know it until our daughter turned like 19 years old and, and uh, you know, stuff started to show up. And um, there was a rem there was a remarkable change in her outlook and her behavior. Um, we tried to help out. I think the, the the real tipping point came when we went over to try to help her one day in the in the co-op she was living at at the uh, University of Washington, and she was sitting in a in an empty room on the floor, surrounded by her clothes that were just all piled. You know, not not in a closet, but just thrown around, piled up, and she couldn't she couldn't decide what socks to put on, and that that we had to take her home. I mean, at that point, she just couldn't couldn't make a decision, and so that was sort of the beginning of a I'd say about a twenty five year uh, period where she's been a single mom. And uh, we've kind of co-raised co uh, her 12-year-old daughter, and she's 45 years old now. That happened when she was about 19. So it's directly affected me in that, in that uh, way, both my wife and myself, of course. The whole family is affected. So that was my introduction to, you know, living with someone who suffers from a mental health issue. I want to underline one, something you said you said the whole family was affected. And, yes. And that's so important for all listeners to know that there's no such a thing as a person suffering from a mental illness in a vacuum or alone. You know, it's, it's theoretically possible if we break a bone or we have some kind of physical illness that people in the family might hear about it, they might call, they might come by, but you can, you know, you sort of heal with your broken leg. I have done that or whatever else you're dealing with, even with serious physical illnesses. And the family's affected, but they're not hugely affected. In a case like yours and in the one, of course, the, the, the various ones in the film, uh, Crazy Wise, that you produced, it's obvious right. that everyone in the family is affected. And the listeners want to know that you can't, you can't limit the amount of impact of such of such a situation can you that's right correct i mean i i don't i doubt that there's a listener that's that's watching or listening right now who doesn't know someone either in their own family or through a friend who suffers from depression bipolar adhd something on the mental health spectrum yes. it's just that widespread yeah that's right that's right and so Phil, I think the statistic is one in five, actually. One so. in five people in the United States, which means almost every family is touched in some way. And right. I'm going to cut over here now to you, Phil, and your connection to this topic of, of mental illness. We're, we're looking at, you know, what's the basis? How did you get together and create this important film? Yeah, and I was telling you how I was meeting these healers in these indigenous communities I've spent the last 25 years in, and when I got to talking with them, I, I started learning that they were identified in their youth by having 
a severe mental emotional crisis. We would call it a psychotic break. Uh, they were hearing voices, some were seeing visions, um, many times they were terrified with what was going on, and more often than not, they had an elder take them aside and tell them what was going on and frame it in a, in a, in a very different way. And often that elder was another shaman who had been through the same experience, so it was, it was like having a peer. And basically what they told them is they had very special sensitivities. These sensitivities are difficult until you learn to manage them. And they would teach them how to manage their mental emotional state in some way, in some initiation. And they let them know that once they did have that under control, they would be very valuable to the community. So the way they framed it was in a very, very positive way. It's in, and I just thought, what a contrast it is to the way we do and the way we frame it in our biomedical um, procedures now. Um, it's, you know, you have a disease of your brain or a malfunction in your brain. And unfortunately, we don't have a cure for it right now but we can maintain it on these medications and hopefully someday we'll have better medications with less side effects. And um, so all our, it seemed like all our hope was in the future and it was all put in the hands of scientists and experts to come up with that solution. And um, so anyway, that's how I got interested in it meeting all these um, people we call shaman in the developing world. And then I was doing, a just as a sidelight, along with the work I was doing on the women's project around the world, I decided I would start interviewing people that were meditating here in the U.S. And I uh, was working with a partner on that, and she started lining up interviews. And one of them was Adam the main sub one of the main subjects in our film and he was somebody who had gone uh, four years he had his break when he was 20 much like the shaman in the early 20s and much like uh, kevin's daughter at 19. exactly it, it the statistics i've since learned is 50 percent happened before 14. um and 75% before the age of 24. So anyway, he had had this break at 20 and put on meds and he was having a horrible time with his medications. I mean, they were causing him nausea. He would um, get so terrified he couldn't see anybody for months at a time. So after four years, he finally cut off all his meds and he did something very radical, which I've learned since is not recommended by anybody. He just went cold turkey on his meds and he did a 10 day silent meditation retreat called a Vipassana retreat. And miraculously, that settled him out, that stabilized him. He was able to go back to work and um, hold a job and, and lead a normal life. And that's when I met him. And that's the first interview. And I just thought, here's this kid with this incredible story. 
and how he was um, uh, fixed with, quote unquote, um, fixed with meditation. And I just started following him. And then his story went on from there. And that's, that's how I got involved. He took himself all, all those medications uh, during the Vipassana. By the way, I went to one of those Vipassana retreats myself, 14 days of, oh. uh, of silent meditation. Uh, at the time, I thought it was the best vacation I ever had in my life because it was totally removed from everything, including I, anything and including talking. It was, it was, it's quite an interesting experience. Uh, yeah. You made a comment that nobody, uh, that nobody recommends cold turkeying off uh, medication or off drugs. Well, you've just met a, 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 a psychologist who, uh, who has an alternate opinion. I've taken mm. literally thousands of people off profound amounts of drugs. And, All at once? Pardon? All at once? I've taken people off heroin, cocaine, alcohol, and marijuana where they were drinking a fifth of alcohol, doing three and a half grams of cocaine a day, sometimes a little joyride if there's a little China white heroin around. And of course, if there's a little marijuana, we'll have a bit of that too, particularly when they get up too high on the, on the cocaine and want a little downer, so they go for marijuana or maybe a little Valium. Yes, I have, I, I, in one sample, you can check this out because I published it, I treated 1,500 people, and every single one of those people, I cold turkeyed off everything. Uh, wow. The, the, worst, the worst withdrawal of all was from a guy who was drinking three six-packs of Coca-Cola a day, and he went through a caffeine withdrawal, which the, the, the headache pain was enormous. So caffeine withdrawal it, it can be really uh, very painful. I'm not recommending that others do this. I did it in a very, I did it at Wilbur Hot Springs, that place I told you where I brought the patient. It's a very unusual environment and I use the medicinal water for the detox. But I've also worked with people over the years who have been on many of the medications that Adam is on. In those situations, I do recommend titrating down. So if on somebody's on 200 of something, Take them 175, 150, 125, 100. And, you know, that's what I did with the fellow that I took for three years out of the mental hospital. I didn't cold turkey him off the yeah. psychoactive meds. I took him down slowly. But the, well, that's what the, the, list, that you... the list that your fellow in the movie showed of the medications that he took was about a foot long. Right. 15 pills a day. How many? 50 pills a day? 15. 15 pills a day. 15 pills a day. Some just treat the side effects, he said. And, uh, yeah, and what I've been told, Richard, is that um, there's withdrawal symptoms to all these medications. It's just like coming off heroin. And that's why um, so many people have told us about titrating off. But it sounds like you've had good experience just cutting them off altogether. It has to be the right set and setting because if you cut somebody off, you've got to be there with a tremendous amount of love and support and encouragement and no fear to deal with what comes down the pike when they get off. But you had All a right. in your film, you have some wonderful speakers as well as 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 real people who are going through this. One of the people you have in your film is Robert Whitaker, who wrote the book Anatomy of an Epidemic. 
Now, for, right. pe for people who are interested in this area of mental illness, that book is a must read. I, don't, I think so. I need to get a hold of Robert and find out whether that book's being suppressed or whether it's selling because it ought to be a bestseller. I mean, Robert himself is a, was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. You know that. You know, he's, right. he's, a, he's a serious research guy. Yeah. What, what he's telling the world is that he found, and you, you know this as well as I, it's in your film, that there's no evidence for chemical imbalance and that what's going on is people are being treated as if they have a chemical imbalance. This is all in his book, Anatomy of an Epidemic. Then they're given a medicine which creates the medical imbalance in their neurochemistry. Uh, then when they try to take a break from the, from the medicine, that's when they go through the withdrawal that, Kevin, you were just referring to. And then they think when they have the withdrawal that their crazy symptoms are coming back. They don't realize they're dealing with a withdrawal from the very medicine that they were given to take care of the symptoms. And so they get into this spiral. They're coming off the meds. They get scared from the withdrawal. Then maybe we ought to take the meds. Then their system goes back to being out of balance, but they're used to it rather than getting rid of the medicine and temporarily being out of balance and then going back into balance. It's a real mess. It yes. is. And he, yeah, as you say, he points it out very well, and he's a very respected journalist. You, you also had two... He's getting a lot of kickback, too, you know. He's getting a lot of flack for this, I'm sure. Well, the pharmaceutical industry would probably like to have him eliminated, because they're selling these things. They're some of the biggest sellers on the planet, the SSRIs, Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. All those pills are based on a belief that the serotonin level in the brains of these people is out of balance. It's, right. it's, this, is a very, this is a very tricky thing because, you know, when I talk about this on the radio or television, patients of mine who are on meds call me. And they say, you know, now what do I do? I've, I've heard the dangers. I've heard what you say about this guy's book, Whitaker's book. Do I just, and I can't tell them to suddenly quit their medications. No. Particularly no. if somebody else is prescribing them, and I'm certainly not. And so they're in a bind, you know, they're learning about the dangers, and yet they're dependent, or they think they're dependent on the medication. And what it comes down to is what you, Phil, was saying before, it's how we treat these people. They don't have alternatives. That's right. We're not giving unfortunately, them. Unfortunately, Richard, they don't have a Wilbur Hot Springs and you there. So, you know, we have to say, you know, meds have helped a lot of people through their crisis because they don't have alternatives. And we want to make it very clear in our film that this isn't an anti-med film. That's right. Because it would do a lot of harm out there. People just thought, yeah, I've got to get off my meds and went off their meds. They have to have that support. And it's wonderful that you've created this environment where they can have that type of support. Because, uh, you know, what I saw in the developing world with, these, with the shaman, and that's just a select portion of the population there, they had that support. And the main support they had was the framing. 
it wasn't framed as a disease or a chemical imbalance. And you can imagine how frightened you would be at 20 years old if somebody in a white coat, an expert, came and told you you had a chemical imbalance or a disease of your brain with no cure. That would send you into fear and that would be a very strong negative placebo effect. So we're saying the whole framing of what goes on not only scares the person, it stigmatizes them, which isolates them. And isolation is one of the worst things you can do in a person in that situation. That's right. And and so we're saying we have to change the whole paradigm by the way we, we look at these events, these episodes. Kevin, you were going to say something there. I can see it on, on your face. No, I... No, I'm just agreeing. I, 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 I don't really have anything to add to that. It's isolation was the key word. And I saw you shake your head as well, uh, Richard. It's yeah, I mean, even if you're on meds, if you're isolated, you don't you're cut off from family and friends, you're not going to do well. There's then there's the, you know, the stigma attached socially in, in, in addition to everything else. So it just starts to stack up and it just becomes too much. Social ostracism is the most severe form of punishment in our culture. That's right. And here we are taking a group of people who, as you point out so poignantly in your film, are in desperate need of contact and connection, and we separate them, whether we separate them into institutions or we separate them by the way we treat them on the street or at parties or in places or in libraries or in, or in buses or wherever we see them. They're socially shunned, which is so different than what you, Phil, are saying you saw in these indigenous tribes, which we consider to be not developed yet. <laughs> I say yeah, that, you right. know, with a big smile on my face. What, what presumption. What presumption we have. In certain ways, we, you know, certainly technologically, we're so much more advanced. But when you get down to community, um, uh, extended families, uh, the tribes I've been into, you know, if somebody has an argument, I've, I've seen them gather around the two people arguing and help them work it out. They they work as a community to keep harmony in in the tribe or in the in the in the small indigenous community. So we are, you know, in our very um, we're a very individualistic society, a very individualistic culture. We we have a celebrity culture. We uh, you know we have a very competitive um, uh, economic system. And uh, it, it, it breeds isolation, unfortunately. That's a nasty byproduct of it. it. It does a lot of good things, but there is a nasty byproduct to, to um, the way we are. There is. And your film is telling us one of the byproducts. So I want to come back to our foundation. Kevin, you were telling us about your personal story with your daughter Phil, you told us about how you connected through indigenous people and then the meditation and you met Adam, who's the, one of the major characters. So 
have you two known each other for a long time and you started talking about the product? Is that how this came to the project rather? Does this came together? Or give us a little history about how a film comes together. <laughs> I, I think uh, we've known each other not that long, since 1999 um, we met and uh, but shortly thereafter, um, Phil was interested in going to uh, photograph, you know, he's doing a lot of portrait portrait work at the time, and and he wanted to go to photograph some, the last existing shaman, uh, apparently, of this, this area we went to in Siberia, and we uh, we were connected with a guide there, and we flew to Siberia, and, and spent, well, I don't know, about three weeks, Phil, uh, photographing all these, basically these women in their 70s and 80s. It was, it's a dying culture. And um, at the time, we thought that was a pretty good story. And we, we tried to pitch that idea. We shot film, we shot photographs. We tried to pitch that idea to several different uh, networks and uh, independent production companies. But I, I don't know, either we were really ahead of our time or we just weren't ready yet. But uh, no, nobody really thought that that was such a great idea. And yet, uh, here we go, you know, almost 20 years later, uh, you, you mentioned the word shaman and uh, suddenly people's ears perk up. So maybe it was just a timing thing, but we've connected that now with, you know, how differently these, these same symptoms are framed and treated uh, in, in those cultures versus our own. As an aside here, the film that we're talking about, it's called Crazy Wise, by the way, folks. Of course, go to Google and type in Crazy Wise and you'll get a bunch of information on it. Um, how much did it cost to make? Boy, that's a good question. <laughs> we did a Kickstarter, a crowdfunding um, campaign to do it, and we raised about $100,000 a film like this, you know, we went all over doing interviews. We did over 100 interviews. So we're probably, in what we've spent, Kevin and I have put in 60000 of our own money. Um, we've probably spent, right now, $160,000. And we're just entering the distribution phase of it now. And, and we're scrambling for more money to get because that's just as important as making the film and what we really want to do is have this film shown in small community gatherings where there can be a robust discussion afterwards a nice dialogue going on where people can start talking about these issues it's a very complex issue and and the solutions are going to be um complex and 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 varied and so, um, you know, on many levels, it's political, it's just getting the awareness of, of what's going on with people in this state. And uh, so that's, that's what we're up against right now. We've just started our distribution um, launch and uh, so far it's going very well. It just takes a lot of work and we need the staff to, to relieve us a little bit because we're working pretty much 24-7 just keeping up with the demand for the film right now. Oh, that's I'm glad to hear it. I think producing this film for less than $200,000 I think is impressive and amazing. I thought you were going to throw out a number like maybe seven or $800,000. I mean, you did a lot of traveling for the film. 
You did a lot yeah. of many different locations. Wait, wait till people see the film that's so impressive. And the photography, the by the way, the photography is touching. The photography, some of those shots are really almost museum quality. They're, they're so beautiful, and I, I commend you for it. We, we, my wife and I, Jolie and I, were really touched at the photography <laughs> that you presented for us. It was really Thank you, beautiful. Do you mind if I just sort of piggyback on what Please. you what Phil was saying about the marketing and distribution yes. funds? As independent filmmakers, and we are kind of a, a small, it's basically Phil and his wife, Julie, and myself and my wife, Judy, with a couple of other uh, team members involved. But, I mean, we, you know, we definitely uh, are at the point now with our marketing and distribution planning that if any of your listeners f feel that this T particularly touches their experience and they want to help out, please go to our website and there's a donate button there and uh, we would gladly receive uh, additional funding help because we're actually putting putting that out there now to uh, to some of our supporters and we have had tremendous luck with our, our Kickstarter campaign uh, to get this far so um, it's been a very unique experience but anybody who feels like they want to give Please go to the website, crazywisefilm.com. There's a donate button there. It's a tax-free donation, and we would gladly receive your support. Crazywisefilm.com. I want to come back to something you said, Phil, because it, very, it resonated strongly, and that is for this film to be shown in small communities. I, I totally agree with you. I, I think that this is a film to be shown in small communities. And the reason I say that is I think it's more likely that small communities will be willing to reach out and care for local people who have grown up in the community, who went to grammar school in the community, who went to high school in the community, and then had one of these occurrences. It's not some stranger being beamed in from who knows where or suddenly showing up. Because in the right. city, as you point out, the cities have become places of alienation and isolation. And we see just too many examples of people, for example, living in an apartment building, and they really don't know the other people in the apartment building because their friends are somewhere else around town. And if there's an elevator... It's elevators are famous for people living in, in, in a building with an elevator and the people don't talk to each other on the elevator. Everybody's quiet. You get on it. It's a very quiet situation. But but even yeah. in public, that's true, isn't it? When we get on a public elevator, there's very yeah. little talk. People don't introduce themselves. Hi, I'm going to be with you on this elevator for a few minutes. Let me shake your hand. You don't hear stuff like that. Right. No. We, we all stand there like this during the time until we get to our floor and then we get off. And so our flight <laughs> and our flight is yeah, that what yeah. you said even on a five-hour flight you can sit next to somebody and they don't talk. and you might not talk so small yeah. towns that's where i started here you know i think small towns uh the, the 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 city that this program is being broadcast from uh, or the the area really it's called the north coast of california and it's somewhat from maybe point arena up north to leggett as a series of villages, they're not cities. There's only four cities in Mendocino County, but the rest are villages, almost hamlets. They don't have police. Mm -hmm. They don't have fire departments. They have volunteer, very low crime, and, and a very good record of taking care of people 
who are different, who are very different. So let's get back to your film. You, you followed two characters in the film pretty much, right? Akaya and Akaya. Akaya, thank you. Akaya and Adam. And now Adam is the man that you met who went to the meditation retreat and cold turkeyed himself. And then right. we see him throughout the film saying very poignant things to us. At one point, he says, if people don't know the screaming that I hear in my head and the voices, and then you have this beautiful shot of him in his car screaming into a pillow. So he has the presence to realize that he needs to muffle the screaming. And yet at the same time, he needs to get that scream out of his system. So either he was taught or figured out to scream into a pillow. That touched me deeply because one time when I was in the hospital after I was very broken in a vehicular accident, I spent hours every day screaming into a pillow because I certainly couldn't let the people in the hospital know what I was doing. It would cause a big upset. But I knew I had to get the terror and the pain of what happened to me. I wanted it out of my system. I didn't want it lurking inside. And I could resonate to what he was doing. It was a very, I'd never seen that on a film before. A very poignant moment. And he claims that that was really one of the main things that helped him get through um, that time. And what really happened to him from the time um, I met him, when I said he was somewhat just a normal, charismatic, nice kid, to going through all that. He went, and what happened to him basically was when he went to his fourth meditation retreat and they found out about, well, he, he started having childhood experiences come up that he hadn't realized, a molestation experience. I knew that and was there. I said, yeah. Upset him, and when he went to the leaders of the retreat, they found out about his previous mental health history, and they said, we really can't handle you here. They they just don't have the liability insurance. I don't know why, but they send him home. And then he gets home, and he's had this realization He talks to his family and they say, you know, you've been nuts for a long time and this is going too far, accusing family members. And so he was alienated from his two main support um, people, the, the, the meditation retreat and his family. And we just watched him just spiral down from that point. And it was dramatic. And, uh, and it just showed me how powerful and how destructive isolation is and being rejected and rejected like that. So over what period uh, of time, how, over how long a period of time did you follow him? Four years. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Wow. So you kept coming back. You kept coming back and showing up in his life over a four year period. That's right. You yeah, two we might have doing... been you two might have been the best therapist that he had. Just the contact with you alone must become well, so meaningful. That. What? So he says that. He says that these interviews have been very therapeutic for him. Definitely. And, you know, and yeah, it gave him an outlet, right? It's, it's, it's sort of like screaming into the pillow, but <laughs> talking to us 
about what's going on with him and just checking in with him every so often. Um, so, you know, that made it that made a huge, huge difference. Huge and, and difference. Kevin, that's huge because he was the center of your attention when you were right. with him. Right. Right. Well, you Phil, were, so that's Phil why you were there. The yeah, I, I got to give a lot of the credit for to Phil on that because he really stuck with with Adam and checked in on with him or continues to check in with him regularly. So even at the the lowest low, you know, he was at, sleeping in his car in a in the snow on Christmas Day. You know, he's living in a car in an empty parking lot. We have a shot of that in the film. You might recall. Oh uh, yes, we're we're checking in with him, uh, and and that that was most mostly Phil. So, uh, in fact, I think helped. there's a shot. I think there's a shot of Phil helping him put cardboard on the windows of his car. To give him some right. privacy, I guess. That's it. Yeah. So, how did you know, Richard? You said you had a sense that trauma might be involved. How did you? How did you know that? <laughs> I'm gonna. I'll tell you a cute story about that. When I was in graduate school, I took a course from a, a famous professor who was considered the country's foremost diagnosticians on schizophrenia, and he gave us his two-hour lecture. And at the end of the lecture, he looked at us kindly and he said, but in the final analysis, I know I'm in the room with a schizophrenic when I get a certain feeling in the lower left-hand part of my back. And he said, if you hang out with these people, you will learn also that you're going to get certain feelings in your body or in your heart or in your mind when you're with a certain kind of person. And so the answer to your question is, I felt it inside, just like when you had in the movie the lady Ikea, Ikea, Ikea. When you had Ikea and you had a you had a, uh, a a film of her, and she was having either a dream, and it was a dream of a man, a dark figure coming into her room. Right. You know that scene, of course. As soon right. as I saw, as soon as I saw that scene, I said. When she was a little girl, that dark figure came in and had sex or did something with her. That's what's going on. I could, ju- yeah. I could just, I could just feel it inside. You know, that's how it is. By the way, I'm uh, also saying that because a very high percentage of the people that I've worked with over the past 50 years who have had serious, what we call serious uh, differences in how they feel and think, a very high percentage of them have had some form of sexual molestation when they were wow. children. Yeah, I mean, it's such yeah. a high percentage that it, it's almost you could just point your finger and say, chances are that happened to you. That's and, right. And, and that's very important. And, and um, you know, that's one of the things that uh, Gabor Mate uh, focuses on, very much so. And I was so glad, you know, that you know him and use him. I've had him on this program as well. He's a wonderful doctor. And, and, uh, and by the way, he tells a great story about his addiction. You know, he had a, yeah. that serious addiction to buying CDs. Classical and, music albums. Yeah. Right? Remember that? But <laughs> yeah, people yeah. laugh at it when they hear it until they hear him tell the story of delivering a baby and the baby's late and he runs down the street because he is so compelled to do some buying. And I think he missed the surgery. It was really terrible. 
but it was a way of, by, by exposing himself, it's a way of telling the world that compulsive behavior doesn't have to be to drugs. It can be right. to various things, including buying. People who oh, are com- yeah. right compulsive buyers of something. Yeah. And, but it still can hurt your life. It hurt his occupation. It can hurt your family. You know, the, my basic definition of, 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 of an addiction is when you do something over and over again to the point where you hurt your family, yourself, or your business. Otherwise, if it doesn't hurt your family, yourself, or your business, maybe you have a hobby. It's a different thing. Right? That's right. Than, than That's a right. compulsion. So how's your right. daughter doing, Kevin? She's doing better. Um, she's had a bit of a struggle lately. She, you know, she's 45, and um, she had uh, been diagnosed in the spring with breast cancer. So, I mean, it just, you know, it just goes on. But uh, my wife and I, mostly my wife has spent a lot of time with her going through that. And she's gone through radiation. She's gone through chemo. She's had some surgeries. And, you know, she's doing better. So, you know, uh, that's the good news. So it's, it's like the 12 step, 12 step, you know, uh, one, one day at a time, one day at a time. Quite a few of our listeners, Kevin, have adult children who have serious mental issues. I know that from the calls and the emails that I get, and I know some of them personally. You've been living this with this now for 25 years. And you've made a film about it. Has your daughter, who's been suffering as the uh, what we call the identified patient since she was 19, has she seen your film? Well, that's a interesting that you asked me that. Apparently, uh, Judy was just telling me last night Judy was watching it. And, uh, you know, our, our daughter really didn't want to, she didn't want to see it. She, she listened in, but she didn't want to really watch it. So um, she, it, she, it's just too, too close, I guess, for too her close. right now. So I've been wondering. A part of my asking you that question is because I've been wondering about recommending it to people that I'm seeing who are suffering mightily and who right. are on medication and, and mm-hmm. what effect. But I've got to believe it's such a touching movie that if they'll let themselves watch it, it will help them. I've got to take a little break. Folks, you're listening to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. We're here today with Kevin Tomlinson and Phil Borges. They've made a remarkable documentary movie called Crazy Wise. You want to go on Google and check out Crazy Wise. And when you have an opportunity, definitely you want to see it. Terry, I need a little technical help from you. How much more time do we have? Okay, thank you. All right. We've got about five more minutes. I wasn't sure how much we had because we had that technical problem before and we had to take a break. So one of the two people that you followed was the lady, Akaya. I keep wondering about her name. You got it. You got it. Akaya. She went from being a wife a mother, to having a serious, what we call, break. We call it a break. By the way, there was a Polish psychologist who some years ago referred to it as the name of his book, 
a positive disintegration. A positive, mm -hmm. That was the name of his work, positive disintegration. Dombrowski was his name. And he said what you have been saying, Phil, about your work with indigenous people, that if the frame is right and if the encouragement and the feelings are right, then what these people could go through can be a healing of what it was that caused them to break apart rather than an ongoing chronic situation which happens so often in our country and they go on for life. Tell us a little, Phil, about what she's doing. Uh, Akaya? Please. It, it, yeah. You mean in her healing process? Well, or she, in her tell a, a little bit of the story because she went from being very disturbed, she got discovered, and she became, I don't want to steal your thunder, she became a healer herself. That's right. Well, uh, yeah, a couple of things happened to help her a lot. Number one, um, she ran into a peer um, center in New York. And uh, a peer center is individuals who have successfully navigated a mental health crisis and somebody that can sit with somebody that's going through it and let them know they're not alone, that they made it through it, somebody that can give them some hope and a little guidance. And so this peer center is called Baltic Street. It's a wonderful organization in New York. And um, by the way, there are peer centers starting to pop up around the country, which is very, very good news. The other thing that happened was very unusual. She met a woman who was trained as a South African Sangoma, which is a essentially a shaman in South Africa. And this woman told her that she herself, Akaya, had um, had it in her blood that she she was a healer. And she had to learn to man, essentially what the shamans tell the young initiate. She had to learn to manage these feelings, these these issues. And and as you know, Kaya had been molested um, by her father when she was five years old. So she had all this pain inside her. And she, uh, the Sangoma, led her through this year and a half initiation. And essentially what Akaya says about it, she says, I had to, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I had to feel all my feelings. I had to make amends with everybody I'd hurt. She had to abandon her kids during this very um, deep, deep, dark, um, suicidal depression she had. And so she, she had to go through all that and before, in her words, before I could let it go and be free of it. So it was quite a process. And now she's, I mean, she's reunited with her kids. She's working as a counselor. She lives up in this beautiful place up in the mountains outside of San Diego, a retreat center where she's seeing her clients. And you can just see it in her face. I mean, from the time we started filming her, Till now, she looks like a different person. I saw it in her face in your beautiful film, how she went from a woman with fear in her eyes to a woman with sparkles and love in her eyes. And it was quite, yeah. quite remarkable. It was. And True. does that not give us hope 
for many people who are in the same situation. I hope it does. And I hope the people who are listening will watch your movie, and I hope it'll give them hope. I hope it'll give them hope. You know, that there can be, there can be light, but it's, it's a rough road. And, and I, I can see in your face, Kevin, you know, that you've been dealing with it for a long time, and you, and you've, you, you know, you adjust. You, you just have to, to figure out a way to have a decent life, even mm-hmm. though you've got a huge challenge to deal with. And I imagine the challenge is still with you every day of your life. Yeah, but we're fortunate because we have very tight family connections. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, interaction going on, and I think that's made all the difference. And frankly, working on this film has has really given me a lot more insight into her world yes. that I would not have had otherwise. So, is there any last thing, any last thing, either one of you want to say about the film or the subject matter before we sign off? Yeah, I'd like to say one thing for the listeners. You know, we haven't released the film yet. They can go to our website and see the trailer. Uh What they can do, anybody that's interested and has a group they meet with or part of an organization that they feel that this message or this film would be valuable for, they can do a community screening, and we will supply them with the DVD to do that. We just haven't released this to the general public yet. Okay, so Uh, let's say that uh, somebody who's listening to this or somebody that gets one of the announcements from this and they want to uh, show this film in their neighborhood or in their little town, uh, if they go to Google and type in Crazy Wise, will they be able to find a a way to contact you? Oh, yeah. They will. Uh, They will. They will. Directly... CrazyWiseFilm.com. CrazyWiseFilm.com. Kevin Tomlinson, Mm -hmm. Phil Borges, thank you so much for joining me today on this edition of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. It's been helpful to me, educational, and and I'm sure it's going to be helpful to our listeners. And, And thank you, listeners. Thank you all for listening to our program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And I want to remind you, that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. One of the biggest lessons that I was taught by the system was to surrender faith in myself. And really for me that meant, uh, you know, once I internalized a mentally ill identity, once I came to see myself as having this disease living inside of me, I... I stopped trusting in my intuition because it was sick. Well, thank you very much for your program, Dr. Miller. Not sure what that little last piece was. Uh, We're going to be going out to our Mendocino studio shortly to give you some great music from Susan Jewell. Loose Cannon Classics is coming up right after Pulse of the Planet. We want to let you know you're tuned to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. And support comes from our members and gallery bookshop in Mendocino presenting local, Local Authors Night. Uh, four short talks in one evening, Saturday, January 21st at 6.30 p.m. Tony Anthony, Jay Mascarellano, uh, Carolyn Cathy, and Lily Christensen. It's a Q&A plus book signing at Gallery Bookshop. 